I'd rather be reading is a podcast that celebrates nonfiction books. And today on the show, we have Mark Rozo, author of the book, Everybody Thought We Were Crazy, Dennis Hopper, Brooke Hayward, and 1960s Los Angeles. This is a book that is very easy to celebrate. It's a time capsule of an era, and it's written by an expert journalist. So let me tell you a little about Mark. He is a contributing editor at Vanity Fair. He's also written for the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, the New Yorker, Esquire, Vogue, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, aka all the creme de la cremes. On top of that, he teaches nonfiction writing at Columbia and puts his money where his mouth is in this book. It is fantastic. More than that, he's a total delight to speak with, and I know you will enjoy our conversation. Take a listen. Mark, welcome to the show. I feel like we have been waiting so long to talk, and I'm so glad we're finally making this happen. Well, I'm so um, excited to be here talking with you today, Rachel. I loved the book. The book is Everybody Thought We Were Crazy. You can see me holding it right now. Dennis Hopper, Brooke Hayward, and 1960s Los Angeles. So I'm wondering what inspired you to write this time capsule of a book? What was it about LA in the 60s? And what was it about this particular couple? Mm. Well, I think, you know, I had been interested in Los Angeles and the culture of Los Angeles for a long time. I had a stint as a book reviewer at the LA Times starting in the late 90s. I should probably clarify that I am an East Coast person, but I was spending a lot of time out there during that, uh, I don't know, seven or eight years that I was doing that job. And came, I felt like I came to know the city pretty well. And I certainly had what I would call the sort of, um, you know, convert's zeal to what made that place interesting and kind of relatively undersung. I certainly had a lot of New York friends who were really snobby about LA and, and didn't like it. And that made me more determined to discover what made Los Angeles dynamic, unique, and actually uh, a cultural powerhouse. And I found that, um, for me anyway, what made LA in the 60s so unique and dynamic was that there was this kind of uh, creative revolution and triplicate going on at that time um, in contemporary art, pop music, and uh, of course, in Hollywood by the end of the decade. And it took me a while um, to get to Dennis and Brooke, and that's almost a different story. But uh, but by and by, I came to discover that Dennis and Brooke really more than anybody else, as far as I was able to determine, to determine, seemed to connect those realms. You know, they knew yeah. all the artists and collected their work. They went to the rock shows and knew the musicians, and of course, they were just completely immersed in Hollywood. And if I had started out as I did thinking like someday I'd like to write a cultural history of Los Angeles in the 60s, you know, <laughs> that would be one of those tapestry books with a bunch of storylines or little maybe little chapters about all of the interesting um, artists and musicians and directors and screenwriters who made that time interesting. But when I started to get immer immersed in the story of Dennis and Brooke, I realized I could do that 360 degree cultural history, but now there was an actual story that would go with it, which is to say something that would have this narrative shape and vivid characters and an emotional resonance and, and heft. And 
along with the challenge of writing about a relationship, which I found to be um, very interesting for sure, seductive and challenging at times. Yeah, well, let's talk about them as a couple. So how do Brooke Hayward and Dennis Hopper represent you? You, you started to get into this in your words that as you put this, I think it's on the back cover, the emblematic love story of 1960s L.A. Brooke herself, this is from inside the book, said that those years were simultaneously the most wonderful and the most awful of her life. So what is it about this couple, expound on that, that is just so emblematic of the 60s in L.A.? Yeah, when somebody says that that time is the most wonderful and awful of of their life, you, you do want to know more you know mm -hmm. I, I felt like brooke was almost setting a dare by by saying that and i could give you a little bit of background on, on them you know brooke i mean together they were really as improbable a couple in some ways as ever existed and brooke described them as being oil and water yeah and um and um you know brooke was for lack of a better term a hollywood royal as the daughter of the actress margaret sullivan who was quite huge in her time and the um agent and producer leland hayward who was really you know we might re retroactively apply the term super agent to to leland hayward he might have been the first real super agent in mm -hmm. hollywood and in and broadway and then dennis as possibly more readers and listeners know uh was this fiercely talented upstart kid from dodge city kansas and i'm from topeka kansas all so right he, there we he's go. a kansas boy now i'm a kansas girl there we go and i was also as a side note amazed uh how much it came up in the book of some interesting person a figure that i needed to write about came from kansas or oklahoma or mm. nebraska there's so much of this creative ferment in la that was was planted and created by these escapees from the heartland um <laughs> i love the dennis way you phrase that escapee <clears throat> from the heartland that's yeah. that's accurate yeah dennis's family did escape from the, the heartland in the late 40s when they came to the suburbs of san diego uh, and um dennis uh turned 13 shortly after that that move and um he uh became uh this incredibly precocious uh, Shakespearean actor at a very young age to the complete bafflement of his salt of the earth Kansas family. Anyway, fast forward. Well, we know that Dennis Hopper is cast with James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause mm -hmm. and then the Taylor and James Dean and Giant. He's got off to this incredible start as his teenage movie star. Uh, we move up to 1961. Dennis's career is not in, in really in such a rosy place anymore and he and brooke meet on this broadway flop called mandingo they're both cast in their respective broadway de debuts uh brooke instantly loathes dennis on sight he's too cool for school sweaty unshaven doesn't know his lines of course you know what else could happen other than the fact that they fall madly in love of course you know, two weeks into the relationship, she's buying him the Nikon camera that will transform his life. By uh, August of that year, they're getting married against the objections vehement of Leland Hayward. <laughs> they're moving to L.A. Their first house burns down in the Bel Air fire in November 61, and they rebuild their lives, and they somehow become really the nexus of everything in Los Angeles in the 60s. Well, and it's about these two people, this couple, but it's also about a place. They made their home at 1712 
North Crescent Heights Boulevard and the Hollywood Hills. So the book really describes it beautifully, but if you could just give us a snippet about that home, you call it the era's unofficial living room, the art, the visitors, everything. Um, Jane Fonda called it a magical house and Andy Warhol called it an amusement park. So tell us about this, this magical place as Jane Fonda called it. Well, it was this kaleidoscopic uh, realm that they created. You know, they it was almost like a life as art installation. 1712 North Crescent Heights was a fairly modest and nondescript uh, Spanish revival house above the Sunset Strip in the Hollywood Hills. It was designed by a journeyman architect named uh, P. Brainerd Hale, who is said to have a wooden leg, 11 children, and who apparently absconded uh, with a burlesque dancer to Mexico and was never heard from again. Cannot make uh, this up, yes. <laughs> which I don't think, you know, was something that Dennis and Brooke probably never knew. But they moved into this house in early 63. They lined the walls with um, uh, work by the likes of Warhol, Ed Ruscha, Roy Lichtenstein, Frank Stella, Ed Keenholz, Billy Al Bankston, um, uh, Rauschenberg, uh, Rosenquist. It was it became known as the Prada of pop. Uh, mm-hmm. And in that way, 1712 was, um, you could say, as avant-garde, or, or maybe even more avant-garde than any art gallery gallery in the world just to just to pile it on but um it was also a place where um brooke really came to the fore creatively in the realm of design as jane fonda said um you know brooke did so much um of this work herself and being an artist she could which is to say that uh if dennis was taking the lead a little bit in their art selections and they each of them had to sign off and I should probably note that a lot of these purchases were made possible by Brooke's checkbook, that that Brooke was taking the lead in another way, which was that she was absolutely in love with with, um, crazy antiques, cast off anything. She spent her days going to these junk shops around LA and filling their station wagon with Art Nouveau panels and Belle Epoque advertising posters and and uh, Tiffany lamps, which you could buy for like a hundred or two hundred bucks. Then um, all the stuff terribly out of style, completely unfashionable. We would call it camp probably now, but this uh-huh. was camp, where camp was barely a thing. And that's when you talk about Warhol walking in and feeling like he was an amusement park. It was that combination of the cutting edge art with this strange uh objet let's say that that brooke hauled in that made it um such a unique environment for the time and um so many of the people who i talked to for the book and who are so excited to talk about dennis and brooke by the way because they were unique couple would say that you know like michael nesmith of the monkeys said when i asked him you know do you remember that house where Dennis and Brooke lived in the Hollywood Hills. He said, remember it? It's like a tattoo burned on my brain. I remember that from the book, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, so let's say we're at a Friday night at 1712. What are we doing? What What's going on at the house? They're they're having a party. What What's happening at this party? Well, this is the other dimension of 1712. So n- not only is it this unique environment that really uh, made an impression on everybody who came through the front doors, but it seemed like everybody came through the front doors of yeah. 1712, which is the other thing that really drew me to Dennis and Brooke and their world. You know, it would be, I, I almost don't know <laughs> where to 
where to start in talking about this. You know, they had the old Hollywood there. They had the new Hollywood there. They had the Ferris Gallery artists. They had the Warhol gang. Um, you know, uh, Terry Southern or Joan Didion might be hanging out. Ike and Tina Turner or Miles Davis or, um, you know, uh, political activists might be there. It could be the Hell's Angels, you know, which 20 of them crashed out in sleeping bags on the floor <laughs> of the living room, which actually did happen right. one one day. So it, it became this nexus, you know, uh, of so much that was happening at the time. And something that I love to think about, and it was a subtext of the book, honestly, I didn't even really develop it in the book, but I think you come away with this feeling was that they had all of this art and they created this unique environment and they had all these people coming through. And <clears throat> so for the first time, there were people like Joan Didion or Ike and Tina Turner who were seeing this kind of art, you know, really for the first time. And in this very intimate way, the just the audience for that vanguard art of the 60s was kind of, you know, enlarged by these again, very intimate encounters that uh, you could have with the work at Denison Brooks house. And I think that yeah. was a very interesting thing. Um, yeah, absolutely. Know. So this is a huge question. And it, for the full answer to this question, listeners, grab the book, read the book, it's out now. But describe their life in the 1960s. What's a day in the life or what's a week in the life like for Brooke and Dennis at the height of their marriage in the 60s in LA? Well, it's an interesting question, Rachel, because I had to figure out how to stitch that together in the narrative. And, um, you know, there's certain biographical subjects who are very cooperative and leave behind reams of, of letters and diaries and day books. And you could say, oh, they were doing this on August 11th. They were doing this on January 3rd. You know, this is when they were having an argument. Mm -hmm. um, Brooke and Dennis were not so obliging, but Dennis, uh, as a photographer, took 18,000 images in the 60s. I was granted wow. access to his archive as the first and I believe only writer who was ever allowed in there. That's amazing. Yeah, so I could use this visual record and piece together their lives. And the visual record is stunning because Dennis was, as I say in the book, supernaturally omnipresent in the 60s with his Nikon camera. Mm -hmm. The Ferris Gallery, to Warhol's factory, to the marches on Selma and Washington, to the human being, to the Easter Lovin', Sunset Strip riots, uh, Watts Rebellion. And then of course there were portraits that he did of every artist you've ever heard of, all the rock bands. And then there was the day-to-day -day life of 1712 and Brooke and Dennis that was just spun out almost like a home movie, contact sheet to contact sheet. Yeah. Malibu for the weekend people hanging out in the house, Leland Hayward coming to visit, the kids, you know, in the den watching Rocky and Bullwinkle, <laughs> you know, and these loving portraits of, of Brooke uh, in that environment with, with the art. So I could, I could stitch together what, what they were doing. And I'm hoping that the, you know, the description I just laid out gave you, would give you a sense of what was happening with them in the course of the week. You know, it could be the Monday night art walk on La Cienega, and then the next night mm -hmm. the Fondas were coming over, then the next night it was off to see the birds at, at Ciro's, and then it was, you know, Terry Southern in the house with Jack Nicholson, with 
Jane Fonda with who, who knows an old Hollywood legend like Jennifer Jones, um, Irving Blum, the director of the Ferris Gallery, Buck Henry coming by um, to steal a chicken leg out of the out of the um, refrigerator in the kitchen. I mean, it was a kind of a nonstop uh, thing in 1712. And there were three kids living in the house, which is right. almost my favorite uh, aspect right. of, of all. So, you know, it wasn't a museum. It was a family. It's a family home. In some ways, this like strange kaleidoscope version of a typical post-war suburban uh, family house. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and then so it's it's so fantastical that you almost can't believe it's real, but it's real. It all really happened. And listeners, I'm listening to Mark talk and the book is just like that. Like you're, you talking about it is compelling. The, every page is compelling. To be honest with you, Dennis and Brooke as a couple, I, I'm pretty into pop culture and I know a bit about the sixties, but um, I was compelled more by 1960s LA than the couple. But by the end, I was obsessed with the couple. I just like, I felt like I knew them. I felt like I was there and, and that's your writing that did that. So thank you for that. And then, you know, not to, so here we go. This is, it's this wonderful life they're living. Then it gets blown up right by by easy rider which is a movie that is a classic listeners i if you haven't seen it please go see it but um easy rider you write about this represents the 60s the classic line from the movie we blew it right um but how did dennis's film how did how did easy rider as you write blow their marriage apart well, what was happening at that time, um, and, and another reason I was so interested in Brooke and Dennis is because of the shape of their relationship so perfectly conformed to the shape of the decade, mm -hmm. which they started in this place of idealism and excitement and then reached this colorful, creative plateau. And then there was this very dark, very dark unraveling. Um, and I thought I could bring a, a fresh kind of read to the 60s that would have this emotional uh current running through it and uh, the issue uh, i'm sure there are many issues and uh, and i i certainly was conscious of approaching writing about a marriage with a degree of tact and respect for mystery let's say sure, sure. but uh, dennis had grown increasingly frustrated in hollywood in the 60s he really wanted to make a movie he really wanted to be a hollywood auteur he was getting cast in roles in combat in petticoat junction uh, instead, um, and this was dri driving him to to drink more and more. It was creating um, very um, uh, strange behavior, let's say, on his part, uh, turning to violence. He was bringing guns into the house. Uh, Brooke feared for her life and the life of her children, and um, it was horrifying for her to see this transformation in, in the man that she fell in love with in 1961, who was this brilliant photographer who had what she called the, you know, the greatest eye of anyone she'd ever known, meaning mm -hmm. photography and art and someone who, you know, was shooting for art form and Vogue and was beloved by artists such as Ed Ruscha and Warhol and Bruce Conner and Ed Keenholz. Um, and I, I I came to the conclusion that, um, you know, Dennis was so, something of a holy fool for art. And it was incredibly painful and difficult to be an artist in 60s Hollywood for the most part. You know, this era of Sound of Music and Dr. Doolittle. Mm. When he finally gets a chance to make this movie by essentially hot-rodding a genre flick, the biker movie, 
into something approaching art, he's really at that point where he's starting to break down and the relationship is starting to, to sour and there've been some violent incidents. And um, I don't know if I wanna give away too much, but things, things really come to a head when he and Peter Fonda go to um, New Orleans in February of 68 to, to begin shooting Easy Rider. They're mm -hmm. unprepared, they're overwhelmed. They don't really have, uh, support staff. They don't have much of a crew. They're running and gunning and trying to do everything themselves. And this became an incredibly fractious couple of weeks in New Orleans where it looked like Dennis, you know, right there on the verge of grasping his dream is going to have a nervous breakdown. His friendship with Peter Fonda phrase they come back to LA there's talk of taking him off the movie and he snaps. He absolutely loses it and okay. broke Brooke escapes with the children and says, I'm not taking it anymore. And she managed to survive. Dennis, of course, went on to make Easy Rider, which became this cinematic emblem of the late 60s and the movie that propelled the new Hollywood, as we would call it, into the 70s, the decade of Scorsese and Altman and mm -hmm. uh, Spielberg, Bogdanovich and, and the rest. And that way, it's an incredibly important uh, film. Um, that really, it changed um, much in Hollywood, including economics, culture, you name it. Yeah. Well, I would love to know the best anecdote you uncovered from your research, because there's a million of them. So what was the one that made you go, whoa, I can't believe that happened? Oh, my God, Rachel, there's so many. I don't even I know. know. Do that's an one? almost impossible question. No. It's weird because I've had so many, uh, you know, conversations at bookstores and everybody has a different one. The other day, somebody was marveling at the fact that that Dennis and his brother David, when they were kids in uh, in Kansas, used to buy their um, get their dogs from the Clutter family. In Gar oh, yeah. In Cold Blood. Capote. Yeah. The, yeah. They're the family of the quadruple homicide. Ah, that gave me that uh, gave me chills. That's, yeah, I couldn't yeah. believe it. Um, that that's was... Kansas right there. That the Clutter <laughs> family and Dennis Hopper. That's about all, and may, maybe me someday. That's about all you need to know about Kansas. <laughs> Just kidding. That is, that's but deep, that's wild. Deep, deep, deep Kansas. That's um, deep Kansas cuts right there. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd like to think, you know, I mean, I don't want the book to be seen as a grab bag of anecdotes, but man, there are a lot of anecdotes, and I, I think on most pages, there's there's something like that that kind of amazed me to discover. Yeah. And and made the writing of the book, you know, uh, uh, fun. Is that the right word for writing a book? I don't know, but um, <laughs> I mean, going. I don't. I've rarely heard it called fun. I mean, but it should be right. It should always be fun. But I've heard arduous more than fun. But good for you <laughs> for having fun with it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, those things, you know, they. I guess they propel you through the process because you do get excited about the revelations that you can. The revelations maybe that you've encountered in in researching and then being able to share them with the world that kind of that kind of pushes you through the day-to-day -day grind of actually getting the thing done absolutely uh, so um just offshoot question how long did it take you to write this book just curious well it, it's it's hard for me to calculate in a way because i had spent a lot of time being interested in things like the ferris gallery and brian wilson uh -huh birds and easy rider and for a long time but in 2017 uh i convinced um 
Vanity Fair, Graydon Carter at Vanity Fair to let me yeah. write about Dennis and Brooke. And, um, and I had in the back of my mind that, you know, this is my opportunity maybe to get going on the book that I'd wanted to write for a long time. And when I got into the piece and was talking to Jane Fonda and Irving Blum and Roger McGuinn and the rest, that yes, there's a lot here and more than a magazine story can accommodate. Mm -hmm. And uh, I needed to do the book. And so, um, you know, I, well, then what happened? I guess I sold the book. I spent all of 2019 continuing to research and wrote mm -hmm. through the pandemic in 2020. Um, and I think because I had a little bit of a pre-roll before working on the book and had really also in the proposal out, outlined it in a pretty thorough way that yeah. I was able to kind of like, mar you know, march through it. And um, yeah, so a few years. Yeah. Say. I mean, as it as it is, right? That's I mean, it always does. But I want to flash forward to the end of the book now. Dennis is dying, and he's apologizing to Brooke for everything he put her through, which you just kind of touched on, even you know, briefly just a moment ago. It the book goes much more in depth into it. He tells her she's the only woman he ever loved. I mean, that's a power punch of an ending to this book of this, you know, rock and roll roller coaster of a book, right? So what are Dennis and Brooks' legacy as a couple and then as individuals as well? Well, well, I think their legacy as a couple is something I really try to explore and celebrate in the book. Um, I don't, and, um, you know, I feel like that legacy is very much um, uh, recognized by those who, who knew them in the culture at large. It would be a kind of a question mark. And the fact that they were able to just let's just take one thing of the art that they were able to make these early important purchases of art by the likes of Andy Warhol, Ed Ruscha, Roy Lichtenstein, Frank Stella. I think that alone is pretty important. You know, Ed Ruscha said he was flabbergasted when Brooke and Dennis bought one of these early paintings of his standard station, Amarillo, Texas, which is absolutely an icon of post-war American art, as is, you know, Andy Warhol's tomato, tomato soup can painting. I mean, that mm -hmm. was a pretty good selection that they made in 1962. Yeah, that was smart. I mean, nobody knew who Andy Warhol was, and it's mm -hmm. like, he would, why would you pay $75 for that? Um, $75, they this, wow. Yeah, they, they had this vision, and they had a passion for what they were doing, and it was infectious. Um, individually, uh, well, first starting with, with Brooke, you know, uh, I, uh, the 60s were a complicated time for her. She was very excited to be part of the art world. The acting went away, and she felt like that wasn't a big deal the acting going away because it wasn't the thing she realized deep down it wasn't the thing she was most passionate about she'd always wanted to be a writer and in 1977 she writes haywire which of course is a mammoth bestseller and considered mm -hmm. by many to be the greatest hollywood memoir ever ever written that was her calling card um she thought about uh she was invited to do part two uh, by Knopf and she didn't do it because and part two of course would be about her years with Dennis. Dennis at that time threatened legal action if she would write that book and Dennis were, and Brooke sorry um, kind of went on with with, with life. Dennis's um, legacy of course is incredibly rich. It's incredibly complicated. I mean there's so many disconnects with Dennis Hopper that the guy who took what Walter Hopps said was the greatest photograph ever taken of Andy Warhol was also the guy who's Frank Booth in Blue Velvet. It's just, um, 
kind of bonkers. I feel like we don't have a grip on him. And that's why I wanted to write this book. I wanted to dispel a lot of mythology about Dennis. I, I didn't want to write about Dennis as a as a wacky, wacky guy. You know, Dennis is so crazy. I wanted to, in a way, write about Dennis the way um, he thought of himself on one level and also to try to explore what he was trying to do. And I think that uh, I, as I get into in the book, Dennis uh, late in life, realized that the photography from the 60s this thing that he tried to bury actually for decades because it represented failure to him was maybe his most compelling creation Eighteen thousand images and he was as i say supernaturally omnipresent in the 60s mm -hmm. he went everywhere with this thing then vendors the director said if dennis had only been a photographer he would have been considered one of the great photographers of the 20th century and take yeah. that out will but i i think in the 21st century we're we're starting to maybe recognize what that achievement uh was and maybe that will outlast in some ways uh easy rider or the acting in rebel without a cause blue velvet cool hand luke all these things i mean to the so much good yeah yeah and, and to the end dennis was frustrated in a way by hollywood even though it it, it gave him by the later decades of, of his life a really nice uh existence i mean he really got it together after he kicked alcohol and drugs in the 80s and was then like you know acting and he was able to direct he was he was again collecting art the art of that time of david sally and basquiat and schnabel um it's a little bit tragic because he did ultimately become uh you know, the man that Brooke thought she was marrying in 1961, somebody with mm. a sustainable career, involvement in the art world. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, obviously they would never reunite right. in a meaningful way until the very, the very end, end of yeah. life where they kind of, where they made peace, which I write about. Yeah. About. Well, last question for you. What do you hope, re and you might've just answered this when you were talking about Dennis, but what do you hope readers get out of everybody thought we were crazy? Well, I hope they're entertained and enlightened and um, have a really great time reading the book. I hope mm -hmm. that it not only increases their understanding of Dennis Hopper as an artist and a creator and a figure in Hollywood, that it will help them understand who Brooke was with her extremely fascinating life, with that gilded background she had that was so touched with tragedy. Uh, I want people to have a renewed interest in Los Angeles as a cultural center uh, mm -hmm. on the world stage and to see the 60s in LA as probably being the most interesting dynamic creative time in, in LA and certainly the decade where LA uh, became a, a, a player on the global stage. This is the decade that, you know, LA surpassed Philadelphia in population built a billion miles of freeways opened opened the state-of-the-art museum and 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 started doing interesting things and I also would love um speaking of Los Angeles that the reader will come away with this feeling of being there somehow I and, and you do and you do you really do you if it, it, it's very immersive and yeah. and that's one of my favorite parts about it and you know you said you just said this and it's this is the best description I can think of for this book it's a good time it's a good read it's a good time it's just good it's good journalism and just 
fascinating. The book is Everybody Thought We Were Crazy, Dennis Hopper, Brooke Hayward, and 1960s Los Angeles. It's out now. Thank you so much, Mark, for being here today. Thanks, Rachel, for having me. It's really been fun. That was the kind of conversation I wish never had to end. Thank you, Mark. And go grab the book, which is out now. We'll link that in the show notes. And I think I'm going to have to watch Easy Rider tonight. I think that's going to have to happen. Before I go, I wanted to sneak in one other quick plug. I am very inspired by one 13-year-old named Isabel Addo Yobo, whose first book, a children's book called An Unexpected Appearance, is out now. This book is aimed at children from ages 4 to 10, and it's fantastic. I read through it loved it. I especially love that Isabel has donated copies of her book to a children's hospital and has donated it to those receiving vaccinations as well. The book is dedicated to children everywhere who experienced the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm going to link this book as well as Mark's book in the show notes. So show both of these great books and great authors some love and go grab yourself a copy. You will not regret it. Great work, Isabel. I am more than double your age and you inspire me. All right, friends, until next time, reach out to me at hello, I'd rather be reading at gmail.com and let me know what you've read this summer and what you loved. Talk soon. Mm-hmm.